Well, I titled the sermon, The Water and the Ark of Deliverance. The Water and the Ark of Deliverance. And uh, we're just going to move through these verses. Remember now, we're in the context, the flow has been Peter kind of bringing application to a lot of the doctrine we had early on in this book. And uh, we moved into this passage last, last week, and we saw more clearly some of these things. And I wanted to keep verse 17 as a bridge for today. So let's begin in verse 17 and allow it to kind of pick up our memory from last week where we left off and move us into these verses together. Point one is this, unjust suffering and the will of God, the will of God. Verse 17, we pick up Peter as he brings us God's word. He says this, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil if that should be God's will. So the point is here, um, if you suffer for doing evil, well, you had it coming. That's a, that, like, you can't say, oh, woe is me. It's, oh, it's there. No, if you choose your suffering, then that's what is, is coming to you. But, but in this context, specifically, as Peter seeks to equip believers uh, about how to triumph in troubled and persecuted times, he's saying, listen, guys, if you do what's right and you honor the Lord and you suffer for it, God can will that scenario. It can be the will of God for that to come to pass. And it was, as we've already seen, that may indeed include uh, your opportunity to shine. Right? God may be turning the lights off around you so that you might light it up and shine, even as you respond to unjust suffering. And then Peter points us, in just, he just moves right in and he points us to Christ. And, and he wants us to see the cross. He, the, the ultimate example of the will of God when someone suffered unjust suffering. For Christ also suffered once for sins. That is a once for all atonement, right? He doesn't have to go and sacrifice over and over like those who would sacrifice the lambs. It's a once for all atonement. And then this, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. That is a one-sentence gospel right there. That's one of the most concise uh, expressions of the gospel that you can find in your Bible. So let's consider this. God ordained unjust suffering. You might say, well, how can that be? That doesn't seem right. How can it be that God would ordain something that's unjust? That would be sin. And the answer is I don't know, but it's true. He can do that, right? He does that. He ordained the cross. He ordained every single aspect of the cross. He even predestined it to take place at the hands of sinful men. And so if we ever struggle, like, well, Lord, where are you? Clearly, you're not here. You don't see this. You're not in this. And and he may be right in the middle of it, saying, trust me, trust me. He is not suggesting that suffering is good. He's not saying the suffering itself is good. He's saying, watch me work in the midst of it. When you are treated and reviled for the sake of the name, watch me light up the dark as you respond in ways unexpected and give a reason for the hope that is in you. God can and does ordain our suffering, believers, 
Know this, you have never met with any trial unless it has first passed through the sovereign providence of the God who is in control of all things. It won't meet you unless God intends it to meet you. And you know if it does, He has your good in view. He is working both for your good and for His glory. No matter what the suffering, martyrdom itself, as we saw with Stephen, the first martyr of the church, God can use that to to spark the witness of His name. So, He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now, don't miss this. You remember the sermon on substitutionary atonement? He is the substitute, the substitute sacrifice. Here's another display of his sinlessness. He is without sin. He is the righteous. And we, my friends, unlike the, uh, the assumption of the day, we are not good. We are collectively the unrighteous. We are the rebels. We are the ones who have turned against the righteousness of God and sought our own way. That is the epitome of sin. And yet God loves us still. This is how he loves us. He takes what I deserve in punishment and he pours it on his innocent son. That is substitutionary atonement. In one verse displayed. The ultimate injustice brought about the ultimate triumph. Now you ask yourself, why is Peter writing this? What is his goal? He wants to encourage these Christians who are suffering. He wants them to know, listen, God is in control. The same God who ordained that his son suffer and die for sin on the cross is sovereign over your life. The most horrific display of sin the world has ever known was sovereignly ordained by God to bring about a salvation that splits history in half. This is the work of your God, Christian. This is how he works. He could have saved in any number of ways, but this is the way he chose, and it was through the suffering of his son. It upheld his justice and his righteousness, and it accomplished forgiveness and grace toward those who don't deserve it. Hmm. So be encouraged. It's about triumph. That's what he's pointing us to. It's, there's victory here. Even in suffering, there's victory to be found. You could say it this way. God can take our greatest suffering and turn it into our greatest triumph. If he can do that with the cross, he can definitely do that in your life. So think of the trials. Think of the challenges. You may have a wayward child, a a son or a daughter who has turned their back on the Lord. They want nothing to do with what matters most to your heart, the treasure of your life. So you pray, and you pray, and you shine, and you speak, and you love, and you say, Lord, please, please accomplish your great salvation, and do as you please to do that, and maybe you get cancer, and you say, wait a second. I need to live so that, so that I can continue to pray and so that they'll be saved. And maybe God says, watch me work. And he takes that cancer and he ravages your body and you fade to the grave. And then that wayward child is shaken out of their sinful slumber and saved. You never know what God might do, how he might 
accomplish a triumph through a tragedy. I stood this week on Wednesday with the family of Jolene Lagerway, gathered around her grave. You talk about a, a woman who loved Jesus, right? She had a beautiful coffin. It was, it was pink and it had roses on it. It was spectacular. It was perfect, right? Just perfect for Jolene. And as we lowered that down into the dirt and we said goodbye to her, we said goodbye with absolute confidence that that is a temporary resting place for that body. Jolene is alive. Her soul is with the Lord in glory, face to face. She is, she is delighting in Him and someday that body will be raised imperishable. You're going to see that proclaimed visually today in the waters of baptism. I will rise. Death itself is turned into triumph. What, what is your great enemy? What is your great fear? What can God not overcome to take trial into triumph? Nothing. He can do it. He can do it. You might not see it in this life. You might not know how he uses your life, your trials, your suffering to accomplish his salvation, his glorious purpose, but someday you'll see it. Someday you'll bump into someone in glory and they'll be like, you know what? It was when you were at your lowest that God inspired me through your faith and trust, tenacious trust in God. Thank you for running the race all the way through the tape. God used you to strengthen me. Who knows what might happen, what you might hear. So, persecution, we don't, we don't encourage it, we don't want it, but oh my goodness, the Lord works like crazy in the midst of it. The church shines bright as the lights go out. Let's go on now to verse 18. The triumph of proclamation. The triumph of proclamation. Let me get some water here. You've got to have this flow in view. You've got to understand his goal in these things. Otherwise, you'll read these verses and begin to scratch your head and say, what in the world is happening here? Okay, so let me read these. Jesus Christ, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, and now Peter goes on. He's going to tell us some, some revelation here through the Lord, through the Spirit, of what took place after Jesus died. Made alive in the Spirit, in which he went, that is Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Okay? Now, who grew up here in a church that recited the Apostles' Creed every week? Anyone here? Okay? And in that, there is that line where it says, He descended into hell or Hades. Okay? This is what is being referenced here. It comes from this passage. What does that mean? What's going on here? What is, what is Peter talking about? He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Well, where did Jesus go between the cross and the resurrection? That's the question that needs to be asked. And there are many answers, my friends, and many wrong answers, I would add. Some say, well, Jesus went and continued to experience the wrath of God in the fires of hell for you. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's not true. I'll tell you why. Because on the cross, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it 
is finished. What is it? The wrath satisfying payment has been made. He finished atoning before he died and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He did not go into the fires of hell. He took all of that on the cross and it was paid in full. No more requirement to be paid. It is finished. So where did he go then? Well, there's pointers in the text. Look at in Luke 23, 46. Jesus calling out with a loud voice right before he died. He said, Father, into your hands, into your hands, I commit my spirit, my spirit. So when a person, that is Jesus in, in, including, right? Jesus was a man. He was, he was the truly, the, the, the God man, but his humanity was real. So when Jesus died, his body died, and yet his soul lived on, just like will happen for you, just like is true today of Jolene. Her body is laid to rest, but she is alive in spirit. So he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He, he gave up his life the moment he chose and died. I remember the, the soldiers came to break the legs of those who were still on the cross. They came to Jesus and he was already dead. And so they pierced his side instead. Not a bone was broken of our Savior to fulfill all prophecy. Jesus chose when he would die. He willingly laid his life down. He gave up his spirit and breathed his last. His spirit was committed to the hands of the Father. So we also see this. The thief on the cross who believed and trusted in Jesus. He repented on the cross. They start, both of them, reviling Jesus. And then about halfway into the suffering of Jesus, he realizes who Jesus is and what's taking place. And he turns in repentance and he looks to Jesus. And listen to the response of Jesus to this thief, a guilty man. He said to him, truly, I say to you, not tomorrow, not in a while, but today, this is Friday, today you will be with me in paradise, in paradise. So there are a lot of reasons to say very clearly, no, Jesus did not go to hell so that you could go to heaven. Jesus did not go to suffer in hell ever. His suffering was completed on the cross, period, case closed. And when he died, he went to be with the Father. He went to paradise, as it were, the place where God is. And so did the thief. He went with him. As soon as his legs were broken and he was unable to breathe any longer, and he died, bam, instantly in the presence of his Savior in a wonderful place of blessing. So, well, we still haven't answered the question then. How do we make sense of what Peter's saying? I would say this. First and foremost, Jesus went to the presence of the Father. He went to the Lord in spirit, and so did the man who believed on the cross with him. But he also went, I would say, I don't know when, sometime during that period of time, maybe later on that evening, Friday, or even on Saturday, he also went and did a victory lap. This is what this is. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, okay? Now, it's still clear as mud, isn't it, right? 
Who are we talking about here? Let me point you to some passages that build this out. Who are these spirits and what did Jesus proclaim? There are people who suggest that he went to hell and gave people a second chance. He proclaimed the gospel to people in hell. Why is that wrong? That's, that's wrong because it's appointed for man to die once and face judgment. There is no second chances for humanity, right? It, you, you, when you die in your sins, you perish in your sins. So who are these spirits and what did Jesus proclaim? Let's go to Genesis chapter 6, a very fascinating passage. And we read this, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God. Now, in your Bible, I would underline that. The sons of God. We've got to answer the question, who, who are these people? Actually, who are these, I should say. I'm playing my, my cards too early. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Five times in your Bible, this word, this phrase, the sons of God are mentioned and every single time it's talking about angels, not human beings. This is angels. In this case, demons, fallen angels. These are perverted, fallen, disgusting, vile angels who are now demons, who rebelled against God, and they sought to pollute the human race. They sought to come in and take as wives human daughters. So angels having sexual union with, with, with women on this earth as wives. This is a major offense, a, a catastrophic offense before the Lord. Now, verse 3 and 4 in your Bible, you'll see it's talking about the Nephilim. And let me just put this to rest. The Nephilim were around in those days and after. The Nephilim, I don't believe, are the result of this union. The, the, I, I thought that for years, but the more I studied that, the more I realized um, Moses is actually giving evidence that they are quite the opposite. They are not the product of this union. They were there, and they continued to be after this judgment. So, you can separate the Nephilim and, and, and that from this, what took place. Now, in the New Testament, there are two places where this is referenced in addition to our passage. Look at Jude, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. God's, uh, uh, Jude is talking about God's judgment, and he says, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. Now, think of this. In this scenario, these demons are assigned a space by God to operate, to do what they do. They only do so like a dog on a leash in the hand of God. In, when they cross the line and they breach that, that, that rope that he gives them, it is a massive problem. They didn't stay in their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, and as a result, God has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Okay, you're starting to see a similarity, a thread move through this. And it's just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, okay, so what was it that they were doing? These were perverted, perverse um, evil, sexually indulgent angels who left their proper abode and moved into the race of mankind, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality 
and pursued unnatural desire. What was that in Sodom and Gomorrah? That was homosexuality. Anyone who says that God doesn't clearly call that sin in the Bible is lying to you and to themselves. It is clear as day that that is sin in the Bible. It is the reason that God in wrath destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. They pursued unnatural desire, and they, these, both of these, the angels that left their proper abode and the men of the city who left their proper function and, and uh, natural assignment, um, one man, one woman, marriage, these serve as, as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So there are angels who have been kept in chains, in gloomy darkness. This is, I believe, where Jesus goes. One more sense you get for this is in 2 Peter. So same author here, his second book, he said this, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to, similar language, chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, you see the parallel here? We're, we're seeing this all connect. He turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So there are multiple places that reference this great sin of demons with the race of mankind. John MacArthur will go on to even add, he believes the goal was to pollute the human race so that the messianic line would be compromised and prevented so that Jesus would not be able to come. Oh, how short-sighted they are in their rebellion and their sin. Do you want to know what demonic activity looks like? Take your answer from these passages. Heresy, the twisting of truth, the turning upside down of what is good and right, calling evil good and good evil. Blasphemy, offending God, finding ways to take what is beautiful and blessed by God and just throw it in His face in ugly display to blaspheme the name of God. And always, don't miss this, always with satanic uh, influence and persuasion comes sensuality and sexual perversion. Are you surprised at what we see in our day? Is it a surprise to you that as the perversion spreads farther and, and is more desensitized, that the enemy steps out of the dark more and more, more clearly? This is the backdrop against the purity and radiance of the light of the gospel. The accomplishments of a Savior who was righteous. Righteous. He went to these spirits that were held by the chains of God in gloomy darkness. And he, he rode in in his spirit and he stood and proclaimed triumph over them. This was a victory lap for Jesus. This was his victory. He accomplished what they sought to prevent. At every turn, they sought to. In fact, 
If you look at the demonic activity at the cross, they contributed unwittingly to, to, to the accomplishment. They killed him through the influences of the crowd and the, and the Jewish leaders that were stirred up, certainly by Satan himself. And in doing so, they undid everything they were trying to accomplish. Jesus is on a victory lap. He's proclaiming triumph. The word here for proclamation that Peter uses is not euangelion. It's not good news of the gospel. It's kuriso. It's, it's, a, it's a, a preaching. And I think it's fitting here to see this. It's just, he's not going there to save people. He's going there to show final condemnation. You are disarmed. You are destroyed. You are defeated. The triumph of the cross. Why is it a triumph? Because he was without sin. There was no sin in our Savior. And he paid our sins in full. The sins of all who trust in him by faith. I love Colossians 2. What an amazing victory this is. He, that is the Father, the Father, God the Father, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. I think this is one of the moments that he did that. Open shame. Jesus is proclaiming triumph over the rulers and authorities. You know who that is? The principalities. That is the darkness. That is Satan and his cohort. All of his fallen angels that do his bidding. God the Father triumphed over them in Jesus, in him. It is a victory. Now, why does Peter want us to see this? Well, because opposition and persecution is not just physical, it's not just verbal as we saw last week, it's spiritual, it's demonic, it's dark and it's evil. And I think he's encouraging them by reminding them, guess what? The darkness has been disarmed. Satan is defeated. You don't have to fear them anymore. Jesus triumphed over him. He is your Savior. He is your hope. Stand firm. Now we go to another extremely difficult passage. Peter gives us a, a, a twofer in this passage. Let's go on. The ark of Jesus Christ, the second half of verse 20 into verses uh, 21 and 22. I'll pick up in, in uh, verse 20 here. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought, keywords here, safely through the water. And then Peter says this, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And if there was a period there, we would be in real trouble. Because all of a sudden we're like, wait a second. That denies so many things we've studied in our Bible already. That's not a period there. That's a comma. Well, in, in the original, there's no comma, but it's helpful to see that. It's still going. Baptism, which corresponds to this, we're going to get there in a second, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's deal with this, this, this bit first. Are we talking about getting saved through the act of baptism? You realize that there's churches in Whatcom County that teach this, that you cannot be saved if you haven't been baptized with water. The thief on the cross is like, hey guys, um, what about me? 
I didn't have a chance to be baptized. I died on that cross. And I was with him in paradise the same day, that moment. Not only would that be a problem, but so would the entire gospel presented in the scriptures. Baptism is not a work that accomplishes justification. It's an an expression of the work already completed of God. A testimony, as it were, of what God has accomplished. An act of obedience, for sure. So, why would Peter say it this way? Let's look at it. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. So it's not ceremonial cleansing that he's talking about. He's not saying you can wash your sins away in actual water. That's not what's happening here. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, why would he say that? How does that tie into baptism? You've got to put yourself back in to the group that Peter is addressing. They are already under persecution. If you show up and you're like, hey, I want to be baptized. I've trusted Jesus as my Savior and Lord, and and I would like to be baptized to give evidence of that reality in my life. He is my hope alone in this life and the next. Please baptize me. Is everyone in the surrounding community like, oh my goodness, that is just awesome. We're so excited for you. No, I'll tell you what they're doing. What was your name again? Okay. Okay. Tasha. Really? Okay. And where do you work? There goes your job. And and who are your parents? Yep. There goes your home. You see what I mean? Catastrophic results come from this public expression of identifying with Christ as hope alone, as Savior. Go back to verse 14 and catch where this whole proclamation begins. He says, Peter says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as preeminent, as holy, as set apart, as Lord, basically. His call is obey the Lord. Obey the Lord no matter what it costs you. If persecution comes, let it come, but obey Him. Christians, right? So this is why I think he's talking about a good conscience. If you live in the fear of man and you say, listen, I, I just, I don't want to risk all of that. I, I don't want the, 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 the fallout of that public identification with Jesus. Guess what is going to happen to your conscience? Guilty. There goes your good conscience. It's going to be, why? Because you're disobeying Jesus. He said, believe and then be baptized. Identify, take up your cross and follow me. This expression of obedience is commanded by Christ. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If instead, though, you say, you know what, I'm going to count the cost. I I trust Him. I am going to obey Him. Let the chips fall where they may. I'm His. He saved me. I'm all in. I want the world to know I'm His. Guess what? good conscience, obedience. You are saved, as it were, from a guilty conscience by courage to obey Christ and proclaim what he has done in the waters of baptism. I think this is the most consistent display then of what Peter means by this because clearly Peter is not saying you're not saved if you're not baptized. It's just you know he wouldn't say that based upon everything he's taught already. We still have to ask the question then, 
In what way does baptism correspond to Noah and the ark? Now, catch the train of thought. I, f- I feel like you can, fee- you, can, you can see the wheels spinning in Peter's mind as he's saying these words. As he's, as he's laying this out, he says, listen, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely. And as he's saying this, boom, a thought is triggered by the Holy Spirit. They were brought safely through the water. And then he goes on with that thought, and he's like, let me just talk about this. Let's talk about baptism. Okay, a couple thoughts on this. Number one, did Peter believe as Jesus did that there was a global flood? Absolutely. This is fact. He's quoting from the Old Testament, referencing here, I should say, referencing an Old Testament story. He is not just saying, oh, it's a great fairy tale. Make sure you teach your kids this. Fun, cute little animals, the giraffe with his head sticking out of the boat. Perfect, right? That's not what he's doing. He's saying wrath fell. We're talking 8 billion people drowned by God in their sins. And he saved only eight. Eight people were saved. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And and that by grace. They were sinners too. They were saved by grace. What did they do? They feared the Lord and they obeyed him. And they got in the boat. You know how many years Noah preached? There's speculation. Some say 120. I think it's closer to 55 to 75 years he preached. He was known, as Peter calls him in 2 Peter, as a preacher of righteousness. Guess how many converts he had? Only his family members. Okay? Imagine if after 55 to 75 years, everyone in this room who was listening was narrowed down to related to me. That's the only people that responded to the message. Everyone else was doing what? Laughing, reviling, mocking the boat builder who preached every day. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you protect that conscience, and obey the Lord. Get in the boat. Get in the boat, Christian, with Jesus Christ. The water is a reference to the judgment of God. It fell, and it rose from the foundations. It rose up, and it fell down, and not a drop landed on those that God put in the boat of safety. He put, in, he put them in protection in the ark. What Peter sees and what we see as well, that's why we study the Old Testament. Noah's ark is not just a historical event. It's an illustration of the gospel. Everything was purposed. Everything was was ordained of God. Every detail. Who closed the door on the boat? God did. He sealed it up. He ordains those whom he saves, and not a single person more was saved that day than the eight that he chose to save. All the rest were drowned, rightly and justly under the holy wrath of God. The waters of God's judgment came in response to the vile sin, and even in the midst of preaching, hard hearts reigned and ruled. The ark was the only way to be delivered. There was only one door. 
there was only one ark, and that is where Noah and his family were found, and they were brought safely through the water. So this imagery here is powerful. One of the things that is going to be on display when Tasha comes in just a minute is that she is in Christ as she enters the water. She's not putting herself in Christ by an act or a work here. No, she's already in Christ. God saved her through Jesus Christ. She comes into the water, guess what? Secure, held. She's in the ark of Christ. And she will go down under that water. But guess what? She will face no wrath because it is finished. It is finished. And she will come up out of the water safe and secure in the ark. There's the other imagery in view of union with Christ. Her faith is in Christ such that as she is laid down in the water, recalling the death of Christ, she's saying, when he died, I died. I died to sin. I died to all that that rebellion, the, the old person that I was that hated God. I died to that person. I am in Christ. And when he was buried, I was buried. When he rose, by faith I rose too. I am a new creation. I am in Christ. I am in the ark, made clean, pure, washed through the power of the Holy Spirit that's saved. You know what else is in view? I couldn't help but see the connection here as I stood there over Jolene's grave. As he was raised, glorified, imperishable, immortal, he is the first fruits of the resurrection, which means just as Tasha is brought up out of the water, if we die in our faith, we are buried, our body will be buried, guess what? Jesus is coming for it. And it's going to be raised. Jolene is coming back stronger than ever. You can't even imagine Jolene Lagerway perfected. Imagine the energy. Imagine the joy and the life. She is going to be making pies like crazy. I can't wait. It's coming. I will rise. This is pictured in baptism as well. Why? Because of Christ. He is the only ark of deliverance. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. How? In. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Key word. He's the only way. There's no other Savior. There's no other boat. Now, he finishes this amazing passage, and he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is, right now, today, at the right hand of God, that is, God the Father, with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. There is no demonic realm that escapes his authority, his view, his reign. They are defeated. They are disarmed. Christian, you will not face a foe that has any greater freedom to come against you than that which God in His Son allows. That's comforting. And even if your life is taken in persecution, you win. You win. I go back time and again as I study. I love Philippians 1.20. To live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. 
Oh, victory in Jesus. Well, we had a little country going there this morning, didn't we? I can't help but hear a country when I sing this song. I think of my grandfather. Man, he would stand on Sunday nights in front of the church. He loved leading this song. He had his hymnal in one hand, and he'd get that arm swinging in the other like they used to do. Remember the, the thing? We, we learned that at Bible school, and I forgot as soon as I learned it. You do up, down, over. Whatever he did, he was doing it. And that man sang, Oh, victory in Jesus. I still hear him sing it. And some sweet day, we'll sing it all together. The song of victory. Why? Because there's only one ark. And you must be found in Christ if you're going to escape the waters of judgment. Our response this morning... I think it's critical that we look at this and consider this question. Are you in the ark of deliverance? Are you in it? As we had some people from our church recently take a field trip together. It was so cool. I had like five, six, seven people. I don't know how many went. They went out to Kentucky to see Noah's ark. Okay? This is a replica of the ark. It is spectacular. It is so awesome to visit. We saw it as a family in 2018 I commend it to you. Go there and, and, and check it out. It is awe-inspiring. And all of the stuff you learn about uh, how the Lord worked in creation and in judgment and deliverance in the ark. Now, I want you to picture that you are here today and you're saying, listen, Pastor, I know Jesus is real. I know he's real. Guess what? So does Satan. That's not enough. To just know about him. Of course, of course he, he's real. Right? That's like standing in front of the boat and being like, yep, there's a boat. It's there. Wow, it's big. It doesn't matter if you're not in it. You see what I mean? You've got to be in the boat to be delivered. You might be standing there and saying, you know, I'm pretty sure it would deliver people. It looks like it's well built. You might say, I believe it can deliver people. But how will that statement be proven true when you set foot in the boat? You hear what I'm calling you to do today? Don't just say, I believe Jesus exists. Don't just say, I know he could save me. Say, save me, Jesus, save me. Save me from my sins. I need you. I have no other hope in this life or the next. I'm a goner. Under the righteous wrath of God, the waters are coming. I need rescue. Place me in Christ. Bring me into the boat. Save me. Are you in Christ today? In trusting Him, believing in Him, banking everything on Him, treasuring Him, obeying Him, walking with Him? If not, today is the day. Today is the day. Cry out, Lord, save me. Bring me into the boat. God delights to answer that prayer. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, as we prepare now to witness the powerful display of your saving work in Tasha's life, 
We give thanks and praise to you for being a God of grace and kindness and mercy that, that, that you would save sinners and rebels like us. We don't deserve it. We thank you, Lord, for the way you love us. You, you, you show your worth by meeting us in our low estate. Thank you for putting me in the boat years ago, sovereignly just saving me. Oh, God, I delight in the deliverer, my only hope. I thank you for all those here who have been placed in the boat by you. Oh, Praise you, God, for your sovereign, saving work. I pray if there would be any here today who are not in Christ, who have not trusted him as their Savior and Lord, oh, God, accomplish that even now as I pray. Lord, save. You might pray a prayer like this. Jesus, I am looking to you. I need you to save me from my sins. Save me, please. Be my ark of deliverance, my rescue my hope alone in this life and the next. I turn from my sins to trust you alone. Oh God, I pray even now that you are saving in power, causing life to spring forth in faith and eyes to see your Son and hearts to love him and wills to embrace him tenaciously all the way to the end. Thank you for your saving power. We glorify you now as we celebrate this baptism. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen. This is one of the special things that the Lord Jesus calls us to do. And uh, it's such a cool opportunity to be here together with the church. Why don't you turn there and face them? I had the joy of interviewing Tasha and asking her the questions of her confidence and trust and, and uh, where she had placed her faith and it's in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And uh, so I asked her the question, why are you being baptized today, Tasha? This is what she wrote. She said, I'm being baptized today because Jesus met me where I was in life and he saved me by dying on the cross and by rising from the grave. I also want to show the death of who I used to be to show that I have now been adopted by God. And I've become a new creation. Man, praise God. The verse that she wants us to have in our minds as she is baptized here is Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. Amen. Good testimony. All right. Why don't you turn and have a seat right here. There's a cool little place to sit. Okay, and then slide forward a little bit so I don't knock your head. All right, remember when I did that, Bob? Okay, maybe not, actually. Okay, Tasha, I'm going to ask you a question here and uh, just give you an opportunity to restate your, your affirmation of faith. Tasha, have you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Is He your treasure? Is he your hope alone in this life and the next? Yes. Okay. Based upon your profession of faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried in Jesus Christ and raised to new life in him. Good job. All right.